picking up at the latter part of the passage that was read into your hearing, verses 36 and 37, which of these three do you think was neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Supplementing the scripture today, a Hopi American Indian proverb, those who tell the stories rule the world. And from Michael Margolis, the founder of the strategic messaging firm Storied, the stories we tell literally make the world. If you want to change the world, you need to change your story. Let's look to the Lord. Holy One, it's once again that we come before you with thanksgiving in our hearts. We're grateful that you have brought us together today to celebrate you, to learn more about you, to learn more about how we can reflect your will and your way in the midst of a world in need of your presence. May we bear faithful witness to you this morning. May I preach your words, not my own, and may your spirit fall on me to do so. And may your spirit fall on each and every one who's gathered, that they may receive new insight, new understanding, a fresh word to take back with them to where you have called them to be your church in this world. May we always be found useful for Christ's sake. Amen. Good morning, Myers Park Baptist Church. It is indeed an honor and a privilege to be back with you. I want to start by saying thank you to my brother, your pastor, Ben Boswell, for literally uh, bringing me back here to preach again. But not just for this, I want to say thank you for your ministry in Charlotte. You've been here for what, about eight years now? And over these years, you have had an impact not just on this congregation, but a deep and abiding impact on the way that the city wrestles with issues like race and white privilege. Such a significant impact for which I remain grateful. I want to say thank you to my friends here in this band, Greg Gerald. Ah, so good to see you. My sister, thank you for coming all the way from Mount Level Baptist Church to be here today, Dawn. Uh, uh, that's where I'm supposed to be, but uh, I get to see Dawn when I come here. I want to say it's great to be here today. On this third Sunday of Black History Month, on the 130th, 34th day after the brutal Hamas attack on Israel, on the 133rd day of the unfolding Gaza ethnic cleansing. The world is in a precarious place today to be sure, divided by hatreds and enmity and violence and war. But as I begin today, I want to talk about a way past these seemingly impossible conflicts. No, uh, those of you who know me, I'm not going to talk about a new public policy I'm not going to talk about a new social program. I think these issues of division, change, actually begins 
in a much simpler place. It begins in a narrative. You see, it all starts with a narrative, a story, because stories are the way that we as human beings think. Stories conceptualize our world. Stories are the essence of our memories. They connect us to our past and provide for us our history. Stories enable us to ponder our tomorrows and help us to imagine a future. Stories bracket our present in the context of how we remember what came before and what we hope will follow us into tomorrow. Stories create our identities, helping us to conceptualize who is in and who is out, who is us, and who is them. Stories reveal to us our God and create for us the context in which we make our moral choices. Changing the world really is about changing the stories that we tell. As this story begins, Jesus is in the midst of a conflict with a lawyer who's trying to test him and seeking to establish his own personal integrity. The initial question he asks is, what must I do to be saved? After Jesus draws from the lawyer the correct response, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself you would have thought the dude would have been satisfied. I hear John Lennon playing in my head, all you need is love. (laughs) Surely I could have walked away happy, but instead of feeling gratified that he had spoken well, determining that loving God and loving neighbor leads to salvation, trying to justify himself, he asked, and who is my neighbor? A simple solution of love becomes complexified by the question of, to whom should I show love? This question seems an attempt to circumscribe love, to delimit it to a certain group, to bound this boundless virtue. It is in this context that Jesus offers us, well, another story. The story he tells is the story of a man who has fallen by the wayside, having been robbed and beaten and stripped and abandoned. I don't want to get into the details today about why the priest and the Levite passed him by. These might be relevant questions, particularly considering the fact that Jesus is speaking to another central religious figure of his day, an expert in the Torah, the laws of the Jewish people. This could be the basis of a really good sermon, just not the one for today. (laughs) Today I want to emphasize the story that Jesus tells. It is the story of a third way. It is a third narrative. Well, before I tell you what the story is about, though, perhaps I should give you a little bit of background about the history of the people of Judah and the people of Samaria. This is where Bible guy gets to have fun. 
I was standing yesterday with Reverend Dr. Peter Wary at Mayfield Memorial Church yesterday, and he pointed out the fact that parables are not just cute, innocent stories, but they are typically, if not always, subversive stories. They're stories that are intended to challenge the way that we think and to undermine common assumptions. They are modes of resistance against dangerous, dominant tropes. In essence, they are stories that, like public enemy, fight the powers that be. This is in no uncertain terms what the parable of the Samaritan is as well. In part, the story of the Samaritan is powerful as it is because it is a story about enemies. I know when we think about enemies, we think about people who are vastly different from each other in our context. We tend to think about people who are enemies as those who cross national lines, Americans versus Russians. We tend to think about people who are enemies as those who cross ethnic lines, Hutus versus Tutsi, those who cross religious lines, Jews versus Muslims in Israel, Catholics versus British Protestants in Northern uh, Ireland, or even those who cross racial lines, blacks and whites in America. But one thing about the Jews and the Samaritans is that they weren't really a different people at all. Their hatred was not based on accepted differences, but denied sameness. They started out as one nation, the nation of Israel. They were divided in 922 BCE, there's a test later, 922 BCE into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. In 722, when the northern kingdom of Israel was invaded by the Assyrians, the ten northern tribes were lost. And this is where the hatred begins. Their antagonism is based on the fact that they were the same people, worshipers of the same God, heirs of the same covenant, each wanting to be the only representative of these covenantal promises. It is because of this enmity that the Samaritans stood against the repopulation of the Jews to Jerusalem and their rebuilding of the temple at the end of the Babylonian exile around 539 BCE. It is because of this tension that the Jews under high priest John Hyrcanus destroyed the Samaritan capital of Shechem and their temple on Mount Gerizim in about 111 BCE. So by the time of Jesus, we see that the Jews and the Samaritans really hated each other. It is into this situation that Jesus speaks this story that we have mislabeled the story of the good Samaritan. I have to confess something to you. I've always hated that name. I've always hated the fact that we call this the parable of the good Samaritan because it does not do justice to what Jesus speaks. This is not the story of a single good Samaritan who might do or be good in this world. That's what the name good Samaritan might suggest. No, this is a subversive story about overcoming enmity and disrupting categories of difference. It is the story about challenging the way that we view those whom we see as enemy and finding them to be neighbors. It is a story about the enemy becoming the exemplar of goodness. 
So instead of just lifting up a single Samaritan as good, a token Samaritan, like Oprah Winfrey or Barack Obama as good black people, two acceptable blacks, while the rest of them, you know, are kind of problematic. No, Jesus removes the stigma of Samaritanism and opens up the space for Samaritan identity to itself be deemed as potentially good. And it doesn't hurt that Jesus uses a priest and a Levite as his foils to of people who would have been viewed as moral exemplars themselves. This is a subversive narrative. This narrative disrupted the normal way of looking at the world through Jewish eyes. This narrative wholly disrupted a two-narrative world. I'm with the Jews. I'm with the Samaritans. By presenting a third way that enabled Samaritans and Jews to act as neighbors to each other. This is the essence of a third-way narrative. In any conflict, there are always at least three ways. Your way, my way, and a third way. Perhaps that's God's way. By doing this, Jesus is answering another question as well. That question is, what does love look like? The actions of the Samaritan in this instance exemplify what love looks like. So, if we see someone who is broken down uh, and down on their luck, love manifests it as our responsibility to pick them up. If we see someone who is bruised and broken and in need of medical attention, love makes it our responsibility to provide health care. If we see someone with no shelter, love obliges us to take them into the safety of a home. Actually, Isaiah 58 said our home, but I don't want to press too much today. And if you see someone who is incurring financial debt with no ability to pay, love says that we need to stand in that gap and provide the compensation. I could go further with this and say that this is a wonderful passage to think about, not just on an individual level, but on a social level as well, as it provides potent political insight for us. This instruction supports love as social justice, as uplifting the downtrodden, reference to Bob Marley, providing health care that is accessible to all, housing the unhoused, eliminating lingering debts, all of this that would humanize our enemies as well. I'd like to go on about this. That's not the point of this sermon today. I think what I want to emphasize today, however, is the fact that we can learn a lot from this story in which Jesus saw a third way. The way that Jesus chooses provides a different understanding of all the people who were involved. It is a world that Jesus cast in this this parable with the Samaritan showing the Jewish community what love looks like. At the end of the story, you can imagine the tension that the lawyer felt when he was asked by Jesus to answer, which of these three was neighbor? It's then that the lawyer answers, the one who showed him mercy, 
not even able or wanting to speak the name Samaritan over him. And Jesus charges him to go and do likewise. As we are in the midst of Black History Month, I wonder if there might be a larger point to this reading. Jesus found a third way that challenged conventional assumptions about identity. Jesus provides a context, a rubric for evaluating humanity that extends beyond single narratives. In the midst of the diametrically opposed positions, Jesus did not ask us to choose one perspective that of the Jew, or that of the Samaritan. Jesus instead brought the Jewish lawyer into the tutelage of the Samaritan enemy as neighbor and made it possible to assume all as potentially neighbor, as moral givers of love, as divinely inspired humanity. The third narrative brought divided humanity back together again. I wonder if we've looked at the story of African Americans in light of Jesus' third way, it might be useful to us. We live in a nation that is divided along racial lines. And if you can't see this in the Queen City, you can't see this anywhere. We know that we live in a city that is deeply divided along so-called racial lines. We know that we live in a city that is divided between the black and brown crescent and the overwhelmingly white wedge. We know that we live in a city that has failing crescent schools and thriving wedge schools. We know that we live in a city that is both white wedge rich and colored crescent poor. Our tendency is in our nation to divide ourselves into camps and to choose one of these positions and to lift up one as significant. The dominant single narrative that we like to tell is the narrative of white people in America who've come here and struggled and suffered in order to make America great again. During Black History Month, perhaps we see a hint of a second narrative that lifts up black Americans as exceptional and calls us to remember the substantial contributions that black people have made to this nation. We hear of cell phones and TV screens and NASA math and traffic lights and blood transfusions and brain surgeries all being pioneered by unsung melanated heroes. But a subversive third narrative might be one that puts the bastardized concept of race in our rearview mirror. It might be a narrative that recognizes that race is not real, that race is a manufactured concept, a made-up story that was created to foster injustice. Y'all don't hear me. It was intended by Europeans to suggest that why they should have more right to wealth, power, and privilege and legitimate them taking it from the indigenous and black and brown others. But inasmuch as whiteness is a fictive social construct created to legitimate unbalanced outcomes in this world, the kind of imbalance that Sandy Darity and Kristen Mullen and Drew Hart were lifting up a few weeks back, so is the concept of blackness. 
Racial blackness is an imposed category that has been thrust upon a people in order to put them in their place. It is no more inherent to their ontology, their biology, their genetics than whiteness is to people who imagine themselves to be white. Perhaps we need to begin to think about our shared and collective humanity past the racial tropes that have governed our vision. I'm not saying that we have to be colorblind. Paul said, may genital, God forbid that that ever would be. I'm not trying to back away from recognizing that we exist in different colors and that we have different histories and that we are peoples with our own cultural stories to tell. What I am trying to say, however, is that race is not part of that story. Race is that which undermines the potential for equality in our current system, and we need to begin to tell a subversive third-way story that moves us beyond race. Shameless plug for the Reimagining America Project, which meets on Wednesday nights from 5.30 to 6.30. All of you are welcome to join. It's all in the way you tell the story. Perhaps we need stories that lift up and center heroes in brown hue, not just for Black History Month, but as part of all of the storytelling of our history. Perhaps the legitimate history we have shunned by calling it critical race theory needs to be added to all of our textbooks and celebrated by each of our citizens. Perhaps we can then see flesh that's called black equal to flesh that's called white. And perhaps a third way that includes all in common would make equality in health care and equality in living wages and equality in wealth and equality in housing and equality in America a possibility. Perhaps telling the truth about our past and recognizing our common human story beyond the fiction of race will give us a better future. Amen? Amen. Amen. I know that I'm going long, but I'm a black Baptist preacher, so I can't help it. (laughs) Perhaps there are other instances where third narratives might just prove useful as well like the conflict over the legitimacy between the Jewish and the Samaritan people, there are other conflicts about legitimacy that are playing themselves out before us today. In part, the story is about Jewish legitimacy playing out in the Holy Land. Don't The Jews have a covenantal promise from God to Abraham that they are the heirs who should possess this land. Isn't the Jewish birthright as legitimate heirs and descendants of Abraham? That's one single narrative. But what the Israelis and far too often American Christian Zionists tend to miss from the single narrative perspective that says this is Jewish land from the river to the sea is that there's a second valid narrative the Palestinian narrative. This narrative says that Palestinians are the rightful heirs of this land. It says that the Palestinians descended from the Jewish people of Jesus' time are legitimate too. For two millennia, they've been called Palestinians. 
Some of them were before called Jewish. And some of those Jews created, uh, converted to Christianity. Some of those we call Palestinians were Jewish and Christian and converted to Islam. In essence, these are the same people as the Jews that we talk about. These are people who have also been given the land as heirs. They are followers of a, a monotheistic faith that Abraham or Abraham and Musa or Moses or Isa and Jesus through the prophet Muhammad passed on to them. They're not aliens. They're not interlopers. They're not strangers from a strange place. They are the people of the land. Both of these single narratives are legitimate and deserve consideration. But the problem is that both of these single narratives are necessarily exclusive narratives. They each lift up one group and deem the other group enemy. They each lift themselves up as virtuous innocents while they tear down the others as savages, immoral, unworthy of the promises. In essence, each of these single narratives excludes and delegitimizes the other. Perhaps if Jesus told this parable today, we might call it the story of the good Hamas agent or the good IDF soldier and center the other as the exemplar of virtue in a way that provides the possibility for equal humanity. No, perhaps Jesus would make space for us to believe that all of the people, Palestinian and Israeli, Jews and Muslim and Christian, all of them have the same ability to be neighbor, the same potential for goodness, the same possibility of being exemplar that expresses love. Perhaps we would open up space for a third narrative, a narrative that says instead of Israelis thinking that Palestinians are enemies and terrorists, they might think about them as the younger brothers who stayed at home and to whom we returned. Instead of Palestinians thinking of Israelis as European colonialist interlopers stealing their land, they might look at them as an elder brother who left long ago, who has finally returned home. Perhaps a third narrative would help them to see their shared history, their common father, Abraham, Abraham, their shared God, Elohim, Allah. Hence their shared possession of a land that was given to them all to share and what about us instead of I stand with Israel I stand with Palestine we might stand with two brothers just remembering who the other really is it is in all the stories it's all in the stories it is all about the stories that we tell Perhaps in the midst of the racial divisions in America, perhaps in the midst of the violence going on in Gaza, just like in the first century Judea with Jesus, we need to learn to tell different stories. Amen? Amen. 
The charge today is less about immediate action and more about opening up space for new ways of seeing the world. It is a charge born of Christian imagination, or rather allowing the imagination of Jesus to inhabit us. In the midst of conflict, instead of choosing sides, instead of picking a right narrative and declaring exclusive correctness and defending that with dogmatic persistence, perhaps we just need to open up space for another way of seeing. And perhaps we can find a way that humanizes not just us, not just them, but all of us. Together, instead of picking sides, perhaps we might recognize that all are neighbors to us. Seeking the third way is not just seeking a different way of viewing, but seeking God's way of viewing. That's where God is often found, not in the either or, but in the radicality of an othered perspective that celebrates that lingering divinity that persists in each and every human soul. Y'all didn't get it. I think Dr. King said it better than I. Every human being is a child of God, made in God's image, and therefore deserves to be respected as such. Until people see this everywhere, until nations see this everywhere, we will be fighting wars. The third way begins with a path beyond hatred and enmity and violence and war in a world that is broken by hatred and violence and narcissistic greed, perhaps seeing a third way, perhaps seeing things God's way is the good news that we need Yeah, perhaps it really is all in the way that we tell the story. Amen.